Hello and welcome to the latest Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, based here in Jerusalem, Israel. Less than a week to go to the uh, US presidential election, and this week we're going over the pond to talk to one of our own, an Englishman in Chicago. Joel Brownold, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Richard. So Joel is the managing director of the uh, S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace. It's a center that educates and campaigns for a just and comprehensive peace that will bring an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, as such, he's in regular contact with uh, US officials, State Department, and members of Congress. And I thought you are ideally placed for all that to kind of to discuss, uh, I, I suppose, two main issues. First of all, to touch base on the US uh, elections and then to get into some of the uh, your expertise in regional affairs here. So if we can start with uh, US politics, just perhaps to orientate our UK listeners. First of all, can you give us a sense of the uh, of the atmosphere of the campaigns where you are? Well, you know, we're uh, we're five days out uh, from the presidential election. And as you can imagine, the country is pretty much on edge um, for the Trump campaign. They're liking their numbers with uh, um, Hispanic and African-American men uh, seeing themselves reach heights that they weren't expecting. And uh, they hope that that will help offset their losses that they've seen amongst college educated whites and seniors um, and pretty much everyone else. Um, and uh, if you're Biden, um, you're really liking uh, the gains you've made across the map, uh, across the board. Uh, you can get lost in the polling minutiae and sometimes it's helpful to sort of take a step back. You know, with five days to go, Joe Biden as a challenger is anywhere between seven and nine points uh, up on the national polling. Uh, if you look at what the states in play are, they include Texas and Georgia, North Carolina and Florida. When you look at Texas and Georgia being in play, that would be the equivalent for Democrats of Virginia and California. And you could imagine the kittens that uh, Democrats would have if they thought that these two massive Democratic strongholds at this point would be in play. So for the Republican, things look incredibly grim. It, it seems to be that the Trump campaign's hope and desire is uh, in Pennsylvania specifically, that a series of court challenges uh, and delaying of counting of the vote uh, could tip Pennsylvania into his lap. At this point in the campaign, re being really honest and just looking at all the numbers, uh, President Trump needs there to be a bigger polling miss than there was in 2016, and he needs to have a 50-50 chance above and beyond that to potentially win Pennsylvania. And even if he does manage to win Pennsylvania, a state of which he's at least 5% behind in the polls, he'd also need to run the table with all of the other swing states. So he'd need a massive polling mess across the board. So Joe Biden's looking pretty comfortable and the nation's sort of holding their breath and is hoping uh, that uh, whether it's on election night or very soon after, there's a clear winner so that this doesn't get uh, settled through a Bush v. Gore type situation though it's very clear that President Trump is expecting with the newly confirmed Justice Barrett on the Supreme Court that he has, a, that he has enough political uh, appointees he believes that the court would rule in his favor should there be any electoral challenges. But we'll know in five days, Richard. Um, mm. So the country sort of holds their breath. But uh, if you had to ask who would you rather be, uh, you know, 99 times uh, you'd say Joe Biden, probably 100 times. And I think it's important to say that for an incumbent, President Trump has never looked weaker. And for, a, for a, someone in challenging the incumbency, Joe Biden has never looked stronger. 
Is there anything that's uh, surprised you over the cam campaign or maybe what's uh, impressed you or disappointed you the most? You know, I think with each of the candidates, you've seen interesting tacks. You know, with President Trump, his inability to get the COVID uh, crisis under control in this country has clearly just demolished uh, his standing. Uh, when before the COVID crisis started, you know, Joe Biden uh, was polling, you know, four or five points above, but that wasn't really indicative of what potentially the race could look like right now. But given the close linkage between the economy and the pandemic, President Trump's bizarre desire to sort of gaslight the nation that it's not really a problem um, has just led to people abandoning him in droves. And he, he hasn't managed to get the same boost that other leaders have received for their just competent handling of the crisis. Uh, he could have pursued the same I want to open up strategy while not downplaying the fact that it's a deadly disease, but he chooses not to do that much to the confoundment of the entire Republican Party. Um, and so it's been pretty surprising how bad he's been on this. Like, whenever you think it can't get worse, he chooses to make it worse. Uh, with Joe Biden, he's disproved all the poll watchers. I think so many political analysts thought that Joe Biden was running a terrible primary, that there weren't really any persuadable voters, that it was really all about turnout. And Joe Biden's just proven them all wrong. Not only did he romp the primary, really won massively, but he's proven as we look at the polling and the electoral coalition he's, he's cobbling together, he's doing it through persuasion. He's winning back uh, non-college whites. He's demolishing President Trump in the suburbs. Um, he's uh, having incredible turnout of elderly black voters. We're seeing higher black turnout uh, in all the swing states uh, already in early voting than the entire amount of over 65 African-Americans who voted before. Um, and Joe Biden, you know, has done a really good persuasive case and has run a very disciplined campaign to make this a referendum on President Trump rather than a choice election. So I think both of the candidates have 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 really done things that are either very good or befuddling. Um, sadly, I think that uh, the thing that has surprised me is just how how partisan uh, the Supreme Court has already or some of the justices have already seen to already be. You know, Justice Kavanaugh wrote an opinion two days ago when dissenting on, a, on an opinion the court handed down on early voting in Pennsylvania, specifically referencing Bush v. Gore, something that uh, the former Chief Justice who decided it uh, said could never be referenced. So I think mm -hmm. it, it's already a sad sign that some of the Trump appointees are utilizing argument and responses that were promised that they would never be done and as sort of cautioning some of the worst fears. And we saw that again with another decision from Thomas Alito and Gorsuch when they dissented on should Pennsylvania be allowed to count ballots that come in after election day, asking Pennsylvania to segregate those ballots apart. So we could be in a situation that if the entire election comes down to any ballots received in Pennsylvania after election day and before the 6th of November, the Supreme Court has laid up an opinion that it could just throw those ballots out even after they're counted. I don't really actually see how we avoid absolute chaos in this country if, if the election comes down to that, but that's been incredibly disappointing to see, but expected. Mm. I mean, uh, clearly the domestic issues have, have dominated the agenda, but to what extent has foreign policy uh, featured at all? And what would you say was kind of the, the top foreign policy issues that have registered? 
You know, it's always this irony in America that foreign policy doesn't play on the campaign trail, but when you actually look at the job of the president, the place that they're most powerful is in the foreign arena. Congress and the constitution really gives the, well, the constitution really gives tremendous powers to the presidency, um, and yet it never really features. Um, I, this is one of the places that I think President Trump really wanted to campaign on. He's extremely proud of his foreign policy record uh, in terms of ending the war in Afghanistan, uh, in terms of uh, his uh, policy on, it, of, on Iran, uh, when it comes to the assassination of uh, Soleimani, and of course the Abraham Accords uh, with the normalization deals with the UAE uh, and Bahrain and potentially Sudan. These are things he's incredibly proud of. And yet there's really never been an opening for him to talk about it. Uh, we only had two presidential debates this year, mainly because of, of COVID and President Trump's diagnosis and the attacks on the debate commission. But the, one of the debates was supposed to be on foreign policy. And instead, we got a 10 minute section where the only thing that was really debated was um, North Korea. Uh, where President mm. Trump is very proud of his record of saying that his personal relationship with Kim Jong-un has prevented a, a war. And Vice President Biden being very clear that the uh, the legitimacy that President Trump has given was rewarded was nothing. You know, Kim Jong-un has not given up nuclear weapons. He has not stopped his bellicose language towards South Korea. Uh, and so that's really the only thing that was discussed at the presidential level. Um, so I don't think it's really been a pressing issue in the campaign. You know, each candidate, of course, has issued statements to the Jewish community, to the Christian communities, to the Muslim communities around some of the, the issues they care deeply about. Uh, but foreign policy really hasn't been on the agenda, which is surprising given how President Trump believes that's been his strongest suit in many ways, and how Vice President Biden, of course, was originally selected by President Obama because of his foreign policy experience as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and given just his own personal experience. So it really hasn't featured here in the campaign that much, despite both candidates, you know, seemingly strength within that arena. Mm. You mentioned the, the Abraham Accords, something obviously we, we, we're um, paid a lot of attention to, but how is it perceived in general? And do you think it's moved anyone with regards to the kind of the framing of this election? Given what's happened with COVID, it's just, it's very unlikely that, that there are very few single issue voters that exist in the United States. You know, there are people, you know, Hispanic voters don't just vote on immigration. Jewish voters certainly don't just vote on Israel. Uh, in many ways, the, the key constituency that's most moved by Israel policy is actually Christian evangelicals uh, who see it as something very essential to their, to their identity and their makeup and how they vote. Um, so I do think that uh, while it is an achievement, uh, it hasn't led to electoral gains. You know, you can look at the Jewish community polling. It's, it's, you know, President Trump's losing the Jewish community by 57, 58 points, 75 to 25, uh, 28. Uh, it's not really having an impact vis-a-vis um, -vis the elections, despite how much President Trump tries to, you know, when he was just, there was a televised call with him with Prime Minister Netanyahu after the Sudan deal, where he asked Prime Minister Netanyahu, you know, do you think sleepy Joe Biden could have done this, trying to drag Netanyahu once again into the presidential race. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, Minister, he didn't take the bait. Yeah, he didn't take the bait. He <laughs> definitely avoided. But you can see President Trump desperately trying. And one of the challenges of having foreign policy wins so close to an election, something that, you know, President Trump is not alone as a president trying to change the agenda by having foreign policy wins, 
it does create a partisan imaging on some of these things. And whereas the Abraham Accords, of course, have been a bipartisan priority and, and Vice President Biden has welcomed them. His surrogates such as Tony Blinken have been very clear that these are things that are widely supported. You know, the Trump administration risks especially when they move out of the bipartisan consensus and move to far more controversial foreign policy actions, such as things that Ambassador Freeman has just done vis-a-vis uh, -vis the settlements and rewriting how US policy is towards them, that they, they're, they're setting themselves up for an equal and opposite reaction should a Biden win happen. So I was just, I mean, I suppose elections aside, how has the Abraham Accords been perceived amongst kind of the uh, the hard left of the democratic camp and I suppose the uh, the pro-Palestinian community? Look, it's complicated, right? So firstly, you know, if you, I didn't really know what hard left on the democratic camp, you know, the progressive community uh, doesn't believe that you can ignore the Palestinian issue. And they're, they're quick to show that the countries that Israel is normalizing are also dictatorships. And therefore, you know, celebrating dictators uh, having normal relations with Israel shouldn't be, you know, isn't something that, you know, is that big of a deal. It's normalization, not peace. Uh, you know, while technically they're right, you know, you can't really be a progressive and bemoan countries entering into diplomatic accords. And I think that's really where some of the progressives uh, are in a rock and a hard place. I think the actual normalization, they're like, fine, but don't allow it to ignore Palestinians and don't claim that you deserve a Nobel Peace Prize for normalizing something, countries that are more worried about Iran than they are about anything else. Um, you know, the only cat person in the democratic electoral sphere that I've seen actively come out against was Rashida Tlaib, who herself is Palestinian American, and it's an understandable reaction, much like the Palestinians. Um, but the progressive community, I think, are just, you know, claiming that, you know, by, uh, you know, if you've got a peace accord that's being celebrated by selling new weaponry and giving Israel more weaponry, how is that really something that's furthering the cause of peace if the only thing we're doing is selling more arms? So, you know, that's really the, the accusation towards them. I think that with the centrist parts of the community, uh, the democratic, there's a general consensus. This is very good and needs to be built on. And how can we use the new arrangement to try and move forward to try and get an equitable, sustainable two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, rather than use it to leapfrog over them. So I do think that there's some recognition that this is genuine, genuinely and generally a good thing. And then the question is, how can it be built upon? Um, I just wanted to take you back to another comment you made just just earlier, kind of uh, implying the, uh, you know, we've got to say five days to go before the election, and we see on two fronts that, are, that I, I can discern that the, the, the current uh, administration are trying to, to push through some moves. You mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the US ambassador here making signing some agreements with uh, that apply to the West Bank. Um, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that and also the conversations that's been going on between uh, Israel's defense minister and the, uh, and, and the Secretary of Defense over kind of assuring Israel's uh, quality of military edge and other aspects that, uh, that they could push through just before the end of the term. Sure. So on, on the first one, we cannot underestimate what a big deal what Ambassador Freeman just did. Uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, in 1972, 
the US created with Israel the Bird Foundation, which is the bilateral industrial and research scientific cooperation, which really has been the secret formula to help startup nation happen. You know, in the 70s, having US funding assistance and promise that, you know, this comes with the full weight of the US government really gave a lot of investors confidence to really invest in Israeli technology. Um, and it, it's been a remarkably successful program. But in the 70s, it was very clear that no uh, project could be sponsored by an entity uh, that was over the 67 lines. Uh, that was standing US policy and Israel had no problem adjusting to that. So you could have people participate who lived in the settlements, but you know it wasn't like a settlement entity could be the sponsoring organization. Um, given the moves that the Trump administration has pursued, saying that settlements aren't illegal, uh, that Jerusalem is the capital, the, the crowning achievement for um, Ambassador Friedman was to basically de facto recognize Israeli sovereignty by enabling US taxpayers' money in these foundations to, uh, to be spent in those places. And the reason that I think not only from a position of you know, where the US policy is, is this a mistake, but there are very, the Bird Foundation really represents, with the exception of some migration assistance money that's used by the Sochnut, really represents the only non-security assistance that the US gives Israel. Uh, and you can very clearly see an opportunity for a Biden administration to actually stop that assistance until Israel agrees to go back to the geographic discrimination, uh, the geographic um, conditionality to say that it can't be spent over the green line. And in many ways, this offers a, a golden opportunity if Biden wants to be solid on settlements, not just to say something, but to prove that with actions. And this was so unnecessary uh, by the, the Friedman uh, you know, the Trump administration, except for to try and lock in these sort of wins on settlements and really does open an opportunity for Democrats um, and a Biden administration, if they want to show some toughness on settlements, to have an opportunity straight out the gate to show something. Because even if you agree with the policy to do it five days before a presidential election is a massive FU to Biden. And if you don't think that the Biden administration knows it's an FU, you have another thing coming. And so, you know, the moves that the Israeli government are making here, there real, could be real consequences moving forward. And, you know, everyone has their own political agendas, but don't assume that everything's locked in stone. Whatever's made by one administration can be undone by another. And it, it, it nicely does tells to sort of the smart work that, that the alternative prime minister, defense minister Gantz, and Defense Minister Espers, Secretary Espers here are doing, you know, on the MOU, what does a QME look like if everyone's got um, new F-35s and, you know, how much more exponentially expensive does this get? And that's going to be a real conversation. It's one thing in a QME within the bounds of the agreed MOU. But if you're blowing up those numbers at a time of economic stress in Israel and in, it, and in the U.S., while Israel is also not pursuing a policy towards getting an agreement with the Palestinians, you want to increase the MOU exponentially to keep track with the MO, to keep track with the QME. None of this stuff is easy or obvious. And so, but what I will say is that having Gantz building his own relationships uh, on this side of the Atlantic and not just running through Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to be a smart play. Uh, both from the U.S. and for and for the defense minister, so we'll see how it all shakes out. But none of these things are obvious, uh, and at a time where there's real fiscal belt tightening, or at least concentration uh, about where money needs to be resourced and spent to try and restore the U.S. economy to help the millions out of jobs um, and everything else, 
focusing on how you increase, you know, the QME uh, in defense spending is going to be a is going to be a topic of debate. I can tell you. But do you think it has um, bipartisan support still, or do you think it is is now also controversial and kind of very much uh, linked into the uh, the legacy that Trump is trying to uh, to build? No, I don't think there's any controversy about the QME. Uh, it's definitely a bipartisan priority. I think there is controversy about should you be selling UAE, Bahrain, <laughs> and others F-35. Mm. I think we have seen various different senior Democratic chairs asking for congressional review on this. I know that Israel said they've got no problem, and that's lovely for Israel, but if it's the <laughs> US who has to pay the accounts to try and keep Israel up on its QME, I think that goes into congressional thinking about it might be fine for Israel if if the UAE gets an F-35, but what will that cost us in the long run? And I, I think that's that's just a decision that smart, fiduciary, responsible members of Congress need to think about as they think about defense spending. That's not an attack on Israel or Israel's bilateral relationship with America or, or, a, or a dedication, a legal obligation to keep the QME. I just think it's a practical reality about what this looks like. So I'm sure that they are going to look at this and I don't think it's gonna be a slam dunk. Uh, it probably will happen, given that the Israelis have, have made it clear that they do want this to, to move forward. But uh, these things aren't simple. It's not just like, well, they've said it and therefore it moves forward. There's, there's a lot of stuff to be thought about and what this means in the long term. And is this, I mean, would you put the uh, what's referred to as the bunker busting bombs in the same category or is that, uh, is that more controversial? I'm gonna I'm gonna call that this is not my area of expertise. I, I I have lectured at the National Defense University before, but I was asked by a bunch of lieutenant colonels about the QME. And I'll say to them what I said to you. Um, I'm not an expert on what does and doesn't claim gives the QME, and uh, it's weapons technology is less my expertise than civil society, so I plead ignorance. But it will all be part of a conversation, I'm sure. Okay. Well, for our audience, we will thank you. Thank you for your honesty, and we will we will address this with uh, with other experts in the in the days and weeks to come. Um, if I can just take you back to one of your other comments, very interesting about uh, kind of this 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 move by uh, by Ambassador Friedman with regard to the status of investment within the, the settlement, and you and you suggested that there may well be uh, that kind of the Biden team have noted it, and there will be pushback. What do you assess? Kind of what's your assessment that will be the the pushback there? And I suppose more broadly, what direction do you expect the uh, Biden administration to take vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Israel and the, and the conflict there? So it's two different questions. Let's be clear. Sure. The, vice the vice president has been extremely clear throughout the campaign that he is against annexation uh, and against the extension of Israeli sovereignty to settlements. And you know, one assumes that also means U.S. support for settlements. Uh, of which this new document and agreement that was signed basically reverses or could be utilized. Now, Ambassador Freeman was careful in his statement saying, this doesn't mean, you know, we're still gonna have professional criteria to assess who should and shouldn't be receiving grants, but there will no longer be any geographic discrimination that if you're in Ariel, where this new agreement was signed, that you'd be discriminated against. You know, will Biden utilize this as an opportunity? Potentially, depending on what happens. Remember, these bilateral agreements are governed by governors that need to agree, and the U.S. appoints three and Israel appoints three. There are multiple different avenues if, if the Biden administration wanted to prevent funding, much like the European Horizon Agreement, from moving forward until there's a new agreement signed. You know, it just depends how much stress they want to put on the relationship. I don't think Biden wants to have a, a tense relationship with Israel. I think he wants to have a very good relationship with the state of Israel. He has a long, deep passionate relationship with Israel. 
a long voting record on this. He constantly refers back to his Golden Air stories and has a record longer than anyone else ever on his Perezal voting record. So there is no animus whatsoever by the Biden administration. But any incoming administration will find it distasteful when you have a nakedly partisan ambassador pushing massive changes in U.S. policy five days before an election. Now, can you blame yourself for taking advantage? No. But would you ask yourself to be careful about how much you get involved in these sort of debates five days for and also in the three months that will follow? If the vice president is successful and becomes the president-elect, I would caution Israel from doing anything in transition that would advance an agenda that the, that the president-elect is clearly against. Because every time you do that, you make it even more likely that there will be a massive blowback. And you know, let's be very clear, settlement policy unites Democrats from the left to the right. You know, yes, you might have one or two you know, right-leaning Democrats that have no problem with settlements, but the vast majority of them are in lockstep that settlements and support for settlements is something that the US must oppose. And that UN Resolution 2334 is something that they were a proud vote. Uh, you know, they were proud that the Obama administration abstained on that. So it, you know, the, the concept of where differentiation in 2334 is gonna lie, is not very clear right now, but the more that the, the antagonism is pushed, the more clarity that it has, and it's gonna be an ongoing debate. And that leads to your second question. Vice President Biden has made it clear that he wants to pursue a two-state solution. Um, he said that in the campaign, he said it in his documents. Uh, and I think that, you know, how that's gonna move forward is an open question. You know, I don't believe, and I don't think anyone is advising the Biden campaign that, you know, on day two, you should be appointing a George Mitchell figure and assume that the parties are ready to come back in. But I do think there will, there is a desire to try and get the process back on track after the Trump administration's strategy to alienate the Palestinians hasn't seemingly bore fruit where, but you know, you could argue that the Abraham Accords really do provide new opportunities uh, to try and get something moving again. I think the Biden campaign is probably in the a future Biden administration would be excited about the possibility of using some of these new actors and allies to try and shake some new things loose. So I do think there is stuff to build upon some of Trump's regional approaches vis-a-vis -vis normalization, whereas reversing some of the, the potential moves. But having said that, Richard, I, I think there's a real question here, and it really comes down to this. Is the aim to restore the relationship between America and the Palestinians, or is it to reset it? And those are very different. If it's a restoration and we basically turn back the clock to sort of January 2017, it's not like where the Obama administration left the conflict was so successful, right? It wasn't, it wasn't very successful whatsoever. Uh, you know, I, you, you can apportion blame however you so choose, but it wasn't like we were burgeoning on the verge of a, of a negotiated agreement. So, you know, a restoration of that relationship could return multilateral and bilateral funding to the Palestinians. You know, it could sort of just go back to diplomatic language around don't do this on settlements and sort of the process just sort of trundles along with no real hope for the future. Or you could potentially see a reset where the Americans reset their relationship with the Palestinians and sort of change how they see the PLO, um, what sort of the expectations are vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians to the Americans, what the expectations are towards Israel and other things. 
Um, and I think a lot of that is determined on what actions the Palestinians might be willing to give to Biden as an early win on prisoner payments, for example. Um, I think a lot of that might be determining about how Israel acts vis-a-vis -vis settlements um, and also how this all ties into an Iran policy um, and how much that's going to be interlocked and interlinked. But, you know, those are some of the variables that I think will, will determine how much time and attention the U.S. will pay. But what I will say is this. A lot of analysts talk about what are U.S. interests in the region, and they, they point that, you know, the interest of creating peace between Israel and the Palestinians, you know, constantly is driven down the agenda as issues of Iran and, of course, COVID and other things make other things more important. And if you take out any domestic constituency, that's very true. However, in America, given Congress's role on this conflict and others, the deep passion that large segments of the American community have for this conflict. And that's not just the Jewish and Arab American community, but also the Christian evangelical community have for this. Make this an unavoidable issue for a US president. It is not something like uh, a country in Africa or Eastern Europe that you can just ignore and hope nothing goes wrong. There will be a moment, four moments, 10 moments that will force uh, Biden administration to do something on this conflict. Um, and so it's not something that can be ignored. So there will have to be a strategy to try and move things forward. Well, um, thank you for that. Just to, I suppose the last question is a strategy to move forward. As the, as the head of the Center for, for Middle East Peace, and you obviously work and engage with the US politicians from across the, uh, the political spectrum, um, What's, what's, what are the key messages that you're pushing and how, how receptive are you finding the politicians at the moment? So, you know, I, I, I lead the center with former Congressman Robert Wexler, the president. And I think that what, what we've been pushing very much is this concept of inclusiveness. And what we mean by that is, um, you know, when you look at Israeli and Palestinian societies and what we've done over the past 25 years, we talk a lot in a liberal international framework of, of peace agreements and rights and and uh, international obligations, and that's all vital, and we can't abandon that. And yet, in addition, there are sizable populations, both in Israel and, and in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, whose worldviews don't really respect those sort of concepts. So how can we bring in those people who they feel that the traditional way of talking about peace shatters them and sort of vociferously destroys them and how can we try and add them into a process so not only are we lessening the vociferousness of opposition but also we're building enough constituencies that can not only get to a peace agreement but can also sustain it and so how can we do that effectively not just from a bottom-up but also from a top-down route what is it that people who are deeply motivated by their faith need to hear about peace who are the validators? What are the, what are the things that need to be done and heard in order to make this not just something that is, that, that is you know, an afterthought, but is integral? And if you look at how the US has approached other countries when they're dealing with you know, issues of war and peace, whether it's in Iraq or in Afghanistan or other places, a sensitivity to illiberal worldviews is really important and something that we think also needs to be brought in into this conflict. And, I, and Richard, just to finish off, I'd say, you know, when you look at Congress, there has been some departing from some of the bipartisan consensus on two states. I think we've seen uh, some Republicans move away from that. Uh, I think we are seeing in the Democrats some splits with the progressives about the nature of the U.S. as our relationship. 
But by and large, when you ask people, do you think that there should, you know, should we get to a place where peace is, is something that we should be pursuing? I think you've still got vast majorities of Congress and of Republicans and Democrats saying yes. But what that peace looks like and what that means, of course, is very much up for debate and discussion. So I think as the center, our job is to, is to continue making sure that we're bringing ideas and suggestions and trying to do our best to sort of publicly educate how we can sort of both improve lives and narrow the conflict to eventually get to a point where we can get a peace agreement. And for us, the strategy is one of inclusiveness. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for that and for everything else that you've uh, shared with us today. Um, we will continue to monitor and uh, revisit the topic again soon. Thank you very much indeed, Joel. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Richard.